This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. I love well-written historical fiction. The author does all the hard slog of research and the reader learns with interesting characters and exciting plot lines. The French Gift is just such a book. Thank you and welcome back to Published or Not, Kirsty Manning. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Oh, Kirsty, this time your research took you into the French resistance. Who was Agnes Humbert? Agnes Humbert was actually one of the, well, the resistance was kind of a very informal network of people in the early days. And she was a part of a network that called themselves Circle um, of um, Alain Fournier. So they set themselves up as a kind of a book club, a fan book club, and they had these clandestine meetings in restaurants around Paris, eating not very much, obviously, because the occupation had started, eating breadsticks and drinking cheap red wine. They'd always sit close to the fireplace, so any notes that they were taking they could throw into the fire if, if any Germans came into the restaurant or overheard them. So they used to meet at this book club and they organised things from um, packing up artwork out of galleries. Agnes worked as a, a secretary in an art gallery, so she had a catalogue of the artwork. They had maps of munition factories and munition storage sites. They helped smuggle airmen out of Paris and over the mountains into Spain. It was quite an extraordinary network. They were very pro de Gaulle so and very anti-Vichy so um, they used to uh, put propaganda um, Viva la Gaulle all over the metro and railway and scribble in red texture all over the currency you know she was really kind of an agitator and she had a list of about 400 collaborators and she was arrested one night by the Gestapo and interrogated for days. She didn't give away that she had 500 names under the floorboards of her apartment and she never conceded and she actually ended up being tried and sent to Germany where she was forced to work in the free rayon factory. This rayon factory, it just sounds so dangerous. You know, it was a work camp, it was slave labour, but just all the chemicals involved with this. What kind of dangers were the women exposed to? The Ministry of Defence after the Second World War actually did an investigation into all the concentration and labour camps over Europe and they came back and said the free rayon factory was the most murderous of all. But the manufacturing involved spinning threads from in acid. It was a warehouse where size of, if you imagine, the exhibition centre in Melbourne, full of clanging machinery, full of acidic fumes. It was literally eating away at their hands and their feet and breathing in the fumes was turning them blind, giving them heart attacks and really going deep into their lungs and causing all sorts of decay and disease. Ness mm. did record history. It's one of the few first-person accounts we have of a woman's experience in wartime Germany. And, and she smuggled in a philosophy book into prison with her. And in the margins of that philosophy book, it was a Descartes. I would smuggle chocolate. She, she uh, <laughs> smuggled 
philosophy book. She kept a daily record of life in the prison camp. So that's how we have such detailed descriptions. And she stayed on instead of going straight back to Paris. She stayed on and worked alongside the American soldiers and became a Nazi hunter and helped kind of re-establish the community around. So she was really quite a force. Now, as I say, we have an author who's gone into a lot of research and the tip of the iceberg of that makes its way into this book, but we get the feel of it all. And just as a writer, you read about interesting things and absorb them. And somewhere along the line, you read about a party trick that went terribly wrong. What was that? I was also, um, as you said, researching that pre-war, that time of decadence on the Riviera. So in the late 1930s, they used to have these ridiculous parties and um, over the summer and they'd try and outdo one another. Um, each party had to be more decadent. They'd fill up swimming pools full of Krug champagne and it was just insane. And one woman came up with the idea that she was going to fake a murder and enlist the local constabulary to come and bribe them to interview all the guests, very Agatha Christie style. And and she did that. She had a party. And can you imagine? Oh. I mean, the, the dinner guests must have been absolutely petrified and in shock. She thought it was a hoot. And I just thought, what a way to start a book and what a way to kind of induce that twist. What if mm. What if I had a murder party and it went wrong? So at your party, you had some important people. There was Coco Chanel, the Duke and Duchess of the Windsor, as well as American and German industrialists. So here we have your fiction mind going helter-skelter and you made all of this happen with Margot Bassett and Josephine Morant. So just tell us who they are. Margot Bisset, she was a maid, so the story is told from two perspectives, one from Josephine Morant and one from Margot Bisset. The story opens from Margot's perspective. She is a maid that works in the villa. She's grown up in the Riviera and she is watching the decadent party unfold around her and she's been given a specific role in the party to make sure that this murder trick happens and goes off without a hitch. It all goes wrong and she ends up mistakenly in jail and she can't figure out why. And when she is in jail, she meets Josephine Morant. And Josephine Morant was a journalist. She was a resistance fighter. So Josephine is very heavily modelled on Agnes Humbert. She's much younger. She's around the same age as Margot, in young, kind of sassy, sexy woman in her 20s. And they find themselves in a prison cell in France, both uh, awaiting their trial, the outcome of their trials, and then they both end up going to the Free Realm Factory together. So together they kind of form this friendship that lasts a lifetime. And Josephine, on her release from jail, goes on to become an international best-selling fiction writer, a mystery writer. So we meet her in later life and hear her story of... Um, so we know the story of Josephine before... She went to jail and her time in labour camp and then we see snapshots of her as an old woman. So 
So Josephine is the grand dame of French mysteries. And you have her, she's written 39 novels, 15 million sales, translated into 20 languages. She's even sold her books on to be made into Netflix series. But over this time, she would never be drawn to talk about her friendship with Margot or what she found out about Margot and the murder. She did write mystery stories or crime books but she said that it wasn't about so much solving the crime it was about justice a quote it's through character and motive it's a jigsaw of misdirected longing and deception her readers love to be pulled into a web of deception with complex timelines and motives her novels were full of lies wrong turns red herrings so we've got Lies, wrong turns, and red herrings. We've got two women, very different in class and education, but the place where the murder took place is in a beautiful home in the uh, Cote d'Azur in France's Riviera. It had been the home where Josephine died over 60 years later. (laughs) And I love this. What did Josephine credit to her long life? Rosé, lots of rosé, long walks along the clifftops and zero pesky children. (laughs) So it's now and, of course, it's pre-COVID times and we have Evie Black, widow, who's inherited Josephine Moran's estate. She's about to meet Clement Tazi. And here's where I'd like Kirsty Manning to read from her book, please, The French Gift, page 31. Right on time for their meeting, Dr. Clement Tazi roared up the driveway in a vintage blue Mercedes sports car. As he got out, dressed in black jeans and a white linen shirt, Evie was embarrassed to admit to herself that this French museum curator was far younger, more relaxed and more crumpled than she'd imagined from his formal letter of introduction. She felt a jab of curiosity. Mm. Madame Laurent was damn right. Clement Tazi was handsome, sexy even. Evie's gut reaction was a little discombobulating. (laughs) Well, you better tell us who they are, what they're doing there. What are they looking for? Well, Clement Tazi is a museum curator and he has contacted Evie to ask if he can put on a retrospective exhibition of Josephine Morant's work. So he wants to display some of her process, her office, set up an office and just kind of show the artist at work, if you like, and of one of France's greatest writers. And he had interviewed Josephine while she was still alive and she had mentioned or he had seen in other interviews, she'd mentioned a manuscript that her first manuscript was rejected And she has come to go through Josephine's backlog of work and to see what's fit for exhibition. And he also asks Evie if they could maybe have a look for this missing manuscript. And so together, the missing manuscript isn't there in her carefully archived list of works. So together they go on a bit of a treasure hunt for the mystery manuscript. There's also sexual angst between the two, which is downplayed as Evie has a teenage son, Hugo, who is grieving for his father. But you've captured the angst and moods beautifully of a teenager. I believe (laughs) this book was written through last year's lockdown and you might have had a teenager at home at that stage. 
had three teenagers at home. So um, uh, I do have a child in year 12 at the moment. So I might have been channeling that angst of the senior years and growing up. But it's not my child per se. I mean, it's funny. Everyone who's read this book has commented that they think it's their child in the book. But there's you know it's just trying to capture that that incredible I guess pride and grief you have of letting go of your child as they grow up but also they're you know they're two steps forwards and two steps back how they're charging through into adulthood with absolute confidence and absolute I don't know what I'm doing at the same time so trying to capture that kind of dictonomy that is teenagehood. Well I think you've captured it perfectly and you've given us this well-rounded area of these two trying to unravel the mystery or solve the crime and there's the delight that every writer has rituals. Josephine before she started any new book she would serve as her typewriter. Kirsty Manning, do you have rituals? Before I start a book, I do start a new diary mm. and I clear my desk space, which has um, usually is piled up from the copy editing and editing of the book before. Like Josephine, I do like to write, write with a sprig of rosemary on my desk. I think it keeps me alert. I like to smell it. It's a little superstition I have, I guess, if you like. And the other thing I do is go for a long walk every morning. It really helps clear my head. So I do have little rituals. I don't have, I'm not cra- as crazy as Josephine, but you know, maybe when I get to selling 15 million books, I'll get myself a few more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope you do, because as I said, you do such great research and you take the reader into such incredible places. And I never know where you're going to take us next, Kirsty Manning. I never know. (laughs) So The French Gift could be the unpublished manuscript of a crime novel or The Bond of Friendship between two unlikely women, one a French resistance fighter and the other a murderer. Historical fiction at its best. Thank you very much, Kirsty Manning. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And now it's David's turn. Alice Pung delves into the heady mix of a 16-year-old teenager grappling with a pregnancy in her latest novel, 100 days. So Alice, welcome to 3CR. Thanks so much, David. Karuna falls pregnant, but before we explore the reasons, she's already caught between two cultures here, European and Filipino. It's an interesting mix. Oh, it is, uh, David, and it's complicated by the fact that she's not native Filipino. So she's Chinese Filipino. So she's ethnically Chinese and they're a minority in the Philippines. Um, And they lived in a very specific area in the Philippines and have a very distinct culture. But also then, Karuna is brought up against a a European background in many ways. Walt Whitman, Love's Labour's Lost, Judith Wright. You bring in these sorts of references and it shows the divide. Oh, yeah, that was deliberate because for a lot of immigrant children, and Karuna is half, so she's half Chinese Filipino and the other half is she's she's a white Australian because her father is a white Australian. Um, And, you know, very early in the book, you know that her parents are divorced and they absolutely loathe each other. So they see in her sometimes the worst parts of each other. And so she's a Western girl. She's been schooled at schools in Australia. So... 
inside her mind she is thinking in English and she has the voices of these great authors and these great poets speaking to her. And then she has her mother who is full of profanities. But then Karuna's pregnancy in many ways is a result of a reaction to this cultural mix. She doesn't quite know where she belongs and is trying to find herself and she ends up becoming pregnant. That's a really interesting way of looking at it culturally because I I just looked at it from a perspective of a teen who felt so burdened by the weight of her parents' controlling love that she just had to do something, anything to uh, get herself out of feeling trapped. So Karuna lives with her mother and her mother watches her every move. She's with someone who controls everything about her. She has no sense of privacy. She's with someone who constantly criticises her. And these are the reasons Karuna gets herself knocked up, besides pure unbridled teenage lust. But her mother, in some ways, loves her and is doing all of these things and taking such control because that's how she sees her duty and responsibility. Yeah, the mother is a sympathetic character for us, the reader. And I did this deliberately. I wanted you to to understand this hardworking mum who's very harried and has two jobs and really can't sit her daughter down and talk nicely to her. She clearly loves her daughter above and beyond anything else in this world. Um, she might love her daughter the most, but she probably doesn't know how to do it the best. You know. You mentioned that Karuna got knocked up, but in some ways it's her own actions that bring this about. To shut him up, I leaned over and kissed him. So she's an active agent in all of this. Oh, she's completely an active agent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Many teenage girls that are very, um, very active in their agency in, in what they do, you know, in even deciding to have a teenage pregnancy. Sometimes teenage girls do it to get a sense of agency about their own lives. Nothing seems to have happened for the first 16 years of your life. And a pregnancy sometimes um, makes things happen. And to be honest, a, a young girl said to me once, people treat me a lot nicer because I have a baby. But now the responses to the pregnancy say a lot about the isolation Karuna finds herself in. She's claimed a form of independence by becoming pregnant. But when you look at the responses, her best friend Tweezer says, why did you do it? Her doctor is more concerned that it's a normal, healthy pregnancy. Um, her school, her former school is sympathetic, but doesn't really want to take any action. Um, and her own mother then is suggesting that she will claim the baby as her own, leaving Karuna to be the infant's sister. So all of these do nothing necessarily to address what's going on in Karuna's mind and where she feels she is. As a teenager, so many people offer you solutions because they don't believe you have autonomy and they don't believe you can make the right decisions for herself. So all these well-intentioned people in Karuna's life are trying to tell her what to do about the state she's got herself in. And it's, it's a moment of great angst because she wants a sense of agency. And this is interesting about teenagers, David. 
when you're 16 or 17, you're still a minor. And then what happens when you turn 18, you know, a day later, you've got full adult responsibilities. You can make adult decisions. And if we haven't prepared you as a teenager to make these decisions, there's, there's no difference. Some people are children for most of their lives. So that's what I wanted to explore and grapple with in this book, 100 Days. But also then the whole notion of becoming pregnant to acquire independency and agency has the opposite effect. Oh, of course it does. Yeah. <laughs> and also I mentioned, you know, even if you think you're quite mature at 16 years old, sometimes you are not as mature as you think you are. <laughs> so you make this decision thinking, oh, now people will treat me like an adult. And no, people are probably infantilize you even more because you are a child having a child as an adult mother you know when you have your baby people give you a lot of advice I can only imagine how much more infinite the advice would be for a 16 year old the narrative is written as if Karuna is talking in the first instance to her unborn child and Karuna's mother is simply referred to as your grandma. So the relationship between Karuna and her mother is a terribly fraught one. It is. It's terribly fraught because when you're young, uh, you don't have the hindsight of experience or the wisdom of years and you react immediately and quite viscerally to your parents trying to take away your independence or your parents annoying you or whatever your parents do upon you is more immediate. So the reason I use the device of Karuna writing to her own child, the unborn child, is firstly, there's a, a closeness there because the child is the only thing she has to call her own. She can't even get changed in the bathroom without any sense of privacy. See, she sleeps in the same bed as her mother. So this child is, is Karuna's private space. And also this child is Karuna's co-conspirator, you know, so she's writing to her child saying, your grandma did this, your grandma did that, kind of like dobbing on her mother to the only person who will uh, probably feel some sympathy later in life. But this relationship is also in many ways almost comic because the grandma, Karuna's mother, is doing all sorts of cultural things that um, Karuna can't tolerate. What kind of egg is that, Ma? I asked, peeling the top of the shell off. Balut, good for helping the baby grow. When I plunged my spoon in, something wet and warm and non-yoky leaked onto my finger. Jabbing the spoon in deeper, I gazed down and thought the egg was all grey and rotten. I leaned closer, then immediately dropped the terrible thing, wishing I'd never looked. So you have all of these <laughs> wonderful comic instances boiled watermelon, all these sorts of things that the mother is doing, which are part of her cultural background, which Karuna finds absolutely repulsive. Karuna's an Australian child. She was born and bred here, uh, like myself, and she doesn't understand the look, which is basically, and I kid you not, if you Google it, it's an abortion duck egg. It's a fetus of a duck with tiny little feathers attached. It, it is, um, it's not pleasant and it's not pretty but it's supposed to help a newborn mother all the nutrients in that abortive duck egg and culturally her, her mother brings in her the best way to nurture a pregnant teenage daughter 
which the Karuna is, um, she's baffled. She can't understand why her mother wants to buy bird's nest for her, which is a literal bird's nest made of um, bird's saliva because that's, it's meant to help replenish you as a pregnant mother as well. And also you might notice in the book there's this obsession with the child having white skin. So um, all these foods are meant to help your child have white skin as well. <laughs> now we're going to run out of time, but what really is part of Karuna's predicament is that she in fact looks at her own mother with gratitude as well as almost revulsion. She's divided uh, because, you know, but while I'm nursing you, I think about your grandma taking those two weeks off to boil me soup and bathe you and put lotion on your skin. So Karina's actually grateful for what her mother has done, but doesn't quite know how to handle that divide. Oh, that, that's a universal divide, isn't it, David? We are very grateful for our parents and their deep love for us. <laughs> their deep and abiding love. But sometimes, and, and in this book, it, it uh, takes a dangerous form with Karuna's mother. Some of it's wonderful. And some of the foods my mother cooked for me when I was pregnant, and they did have a, a therapeutic effect. I felt my toes and my fingers warming up when she cooked me all those ginger dishes so there is some form of scientific proof to some of it but her mother's not educated and her mother um, is quite superstitious and when you get that it's not just cultural among Southeast Asians or you know it happens in any kind of child parent relationship maybe if the parents are quite religious if the parents believe there are certain things they do for the own good of that child that um we as a society probably would frown upon what, what's that there to stop that parent from <laughs> imposing their beliefs on their child. So basically that's what the book is about. We are going to have to bring the interview to an end, but in the epilogue, there is an encounter between Karuna and Ray, the father of the child. We will leave it for the reader to find out how that encounter pans out. But the Walt Whitman line, I celebrate myself, is how the book ends. Do you think Karuna has managed to achieve agency at the very end of the novel? Some form of agency, David. <laughs> you're still, you're still a, she's still 16. She's still legally not an adult. And she's still, you know, she, her mother's still in her life, of course. <laughs> but she has made, achieved some sort of agency um, in, in many different ways, financial, spiritual, you know, um, in terms of her relationship with both her mother and that child. So I'll just leave it up to the reader to discover these things for herself. Well, it's a fascinating read. The author is Alice Pung. The novel is 100 Days, and it's a black ink release. So, Alice, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.